Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 7th of February, and this is Govind Raj Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes of the day global brokerages project major fund flow shifts from China to India. China's Xi Jinping steps in to prevent market fall in unprecedented move. India to see $67 billion of energy investments in the next five to six years, the Prime Minister. Move over, pizzas, fried chicken and burgers are gaining ground. And understanding payment rails, how payments happen in India in the context of Paytm. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. International brokerages project shift in flows towards India. First, what's happened in the markets on Tuesday? They looked up with the BAC Sensex going up 455 points to end at 72,186, while the Nifty 50 ended at 21,929, up 158 points. So the theme of this week is not just China's markets coming under huge selling pressure and, of course, the government increasingly stepping up to halt the outflows, but the shift to India. Now, much of that cash leaving China is heading for India with Wall Street giants like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley endorsing the South Asian nation. That's India as a prime investment destination for the next decade, according to Bloomberg. Now, this trend is, of course, not new and has been visible and evident as the core report has been reporting in the last few months. But there are some newer names and bigger bets. The $62 billion hedge fund Marshall Waste has positioned India as its biggest net long bet after the United States in its flagship hedge fund. An arm of Zurich-based Wantobel Holding AG has made India its top emerging market holding and Janus Henderson Group PLC is exploring fund house acquisitions. Even Japan's traditionally conservative retail investors are joining the party, says Bloomberg, as investors now see India as a market that's similar to what China once was all of them betting that the stock market will grow at least as much as GDP, that's 7%. Bloomberg quotes the example of a US exchange-traded fund market where the main fund-buying Indian stocks received record inflows in the final quarter of 2023, while the four largest China funds combined saw outflows of about $800 million. Active bond funds have put 50 cents to work in India for every dollar they pulled from China since 2022, according to EPFR data quoted by Bloomberg. Morgan Stanley has predicted that India's stock market will become the third largest by 2030. Its weight in the MSCI Inc. benchmark index for developing market equities is now at an all-time high of 18%, even as China's share has shrunk to its lowest on record at about 25%. Now, there is, of course, a flip side to this story, as Bloomberg points out, and of course, everyone has been tracking here, which is valuations. The Sensex has now tripled from its March 2020 low, while earnings have only doubled. The gauge trades at more than 20 times future earnings, 27% more expensive than the average for the 2010 to 2020 period. Now, the bet, of course, as you look ahead or we look ahead, is multi-decadal growth, even as markets and valuations adjust for earnings, which is that if corporate or companies grow at about 15%, then the market or Nifty 50 would also grow at about 15% as it has happened in recent years. China's leadership steps in to prevent market fall. Even as all those funds move out, in what is being considered as an unprecedented move, Chinese President Xi Jinping is meeting with financial market regulators, among others, to get a briefing on the state of the stock markets and presumably the responses to it. Chinese stocks have been hammered in recent weeks, extending losses to five-year lows. 
Right now, Chinese stocks have bounced back after Bloomberg reported that regulators led by the China Securities Regulatory Commission will meet with the country's top political leadership. Just to give you a background, some $7 trillion of value have been wiped off Hong Kong and China equity since their peak in 2021. And there is an increasing clamor for government and government-led institutions to do something, as in some cases they've already been doing. An analyst at Society General SA told Bloomberg that their view has been that state support can indeed lead to a tactical rebound, but they were not sure if this could be enough for a sustained rally. According to them, even if we saw 2015, the buying had started in the summer, but the rebound didn't last and the market bottomed out in early 2016. Either way, global markets and investors are, of course, watching quite keenly to see if the increased political interest in the markets and the economy will cause any noteworthy shifts in the overall direction of the economy and, of course, the markets. Economists give up predicting recession. Remember the talk of recession for the last few years in the United States? Well, now there seems to be a definitive view or rather a growing set of definitive views that there is no recession. Deutsche Bank, for example, is no longer expecting the U.S. economy to tip into recession this year, given cooling inflation and the labor market returning to a better balance without unemployment rising significantly, according to Reuters. The brokerage earlier had expected the economy to enter a mild recession as the Federal Reserve tightened interest rates to tame inflation, narrowing the window for a soft landing, as it's called. Deutsche Bank said in a note on Monday that it now expects the United States economy to grow by about 1.9% this year on a quarterly average basis compared to its prior forecast of just 0.3%. Deutsche Bank's chief US economist told Reuters that though the economy continues to face several headwinds, including still tight credit conditions, rising consumer delinquency rates and a slowing labor market, the resilience to date points to a more benign slowdown in 2024 than they had previously projected. Note the word resilience. The Federal Reserve is expected to start easing rates from June and not March as many had hoped and expected, all of which is affecting capital flows in the rest of the world and the dollar itself. The US economy, by the way, grew a faster than expected 3.3% in the fourth quarter of last year thanks to strong consumer spending, with growth for the full year coming in at 2.5%. Essentially, shrugging off predictions of a recession after the Federal Reserve's aggressive rate hikes. So, despite the high interest rates, no recession. India projects massive energy investments in the next five to six years. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has said India would see investments worth about $67 billion in the energy sector over the next five to six years. He was speaking at the second edition of the India Energy Week 2024, which started off in Goa yesterday. India will earmark a major share of the $134 billion in planned infrastructure spending in next year's budget to the energy sector to meet surging demand, he said, adding that India's primary energy demand is expected to double by 2045 and that India is making preparations for that and at the same time also trying to ensure that there is affordable energy for its citizens. Prime Minister said that India would significantly raise refining capacity from about 254 million metric tons per annum to 450 million metric tons per annum by 2030, according to the Mint newspaper. He also emphasized the progress in renewable energy and ethanol blending, pointing out that India's solar install capacity has increased by more than 20 times over the last decade, also adding that the remarkable rise in ethanol blending has gone from just 1.5% to over 12%. Ethanol is mixed, by the way, with petrol and other fuels. 
India's energy demand will double to about 38 million barrels by 2045. The Prime Minister said that the percentage of natural gas in the overall energy mix is being increased from 6 to 15 percent, even as many 5,000 compressed biogas plants are being worked upon. India is the world's third biggest oil importer and consumer and is dependent on crude oil from different parts of the world to meet domestic demand or more than 80 percent of it. Meanwhile, on crude prices, Not much action except that it's now around $78.50 or under $79 a barrel, lower than what it was over the last week, but higher than what it had fallen to over the weekend. The energy segment was brought to you by India Energy Week, now underway in Goa. And for more details, log on to www.indiaenergyweek.com. Nova Holdings invests in Manipal hospitals. In an interesting healthcare sector investment in India that is Novo Holdings the controlling shareholder of Danish drug maker Novo Nordisk said on Tuesday it was investing in hospital chain Manipal Hospitals as it seeks to tap into the growing market potential in Asia Reuters reported the Danish holding company which invests in life sciences companies and had assets of about 115 billion dollars at the end of 2022 did not disclose more details on the size of the investment but said it was its largest in Asia to date Novo Nordisk is most recently and famously known as the maker of Wegovy and Ozempic the slimming and diabetes drugs that have taken the world by storm. Manipal Hospitals has 33 hospitals across India with around 6 million patients annually according to Novo Holdings. Novo Nordisk had said in September last year that it would bring Wegovy to India in 2026. It already sells Ozempic's Indian version under the brand name of Ribelsis. India goes slow on pizza, steps up on fried chicken and burgers. From that discussion on weight loss drugs, the top line news now is that Indians are eating more and ordering more including from what is known as quick service restaurants. India's QSR market is set to grow at a compounded annual growth rate of 32% between 2023 and 27, faster than the foods and beverage industry growth of 19% and faster than many other countries. The reasons for this are several and include growth in non-metro markets, greater contribution of delivery, newer brands including local or hyperlocal ones. But within that there are some interesting shifts. KFC India has posted a 30% growth in the 19 to 23 that's 2019 to 2023 versus its peers across categories that have grown only by about 17%. Also representative of the fact that non-vegetarian consumption is growing in this category according to a new report from Elara Capital called Hunger Games. Moreover, pizzas have slowed down though they still represent a lion's share of the market. The way Elara Capital sees it, India has about 3.9 pizza outlets per million versus a 1.05 fried chicken outlets per million, which means there is an opportunity still there. Now, delivery is a big factor in all of this, which means that because all of us can order in this kind of food or fast food faster, we tend to do so, which obviously leads to their growth. Non-pizza QSR chains have now touched almost 35 to 38 percent in terms of deliveries in the post-COVID era. It could go higher, including in fried chicken and burgers, but not beyond 40 to 42 percent in delivery contribution. As quite importantly, consumers continue to return to restaurants. I reached out to Karan Torani, senior vice president at Ilara Capital and author of this report, and I began by asking him what were the food consumption trends that he was seeing. I think the broad trend is very clear that you know QSR is seeing increased adoption as an industry 
if you look at the FNB industry in India, for that matter, unorganized market is kind of shrinking and the organized market is kind of gaining share. And QSRs, you know, have a role to play over here. Just some broader numbers, you know, we're at 68, 69% unorganized market in F about seven to eight years back. Today, that number is about 52% and going ahead, it could potentially go below, much below 50%. So the point in time to make is organized market is gaining share. There is increased aspiration level. Ticket values, you know, are kind of increasing. This QSR chains are also able to expand aggressively, you know, beyond the metros. The sort of demographic thing as well, right, in terms of delivery, you know, trend picking up. Most of these companies have got a digital tool through aggregators. Urbanization trends picking up, changing lifestyles, young working age, increased per capita income. I think these are largely drivers in terms of the quick service restaurants and potentially them gaining market share. Right. So now if you were to look at brands, which is what I'm sure people will be able to get a sense of. So you've got brands serving pizzas, burgers, fried chickens. So what's growing here and what's not perhaps? So I think both, you know, from an SSC standpoint and from an expansion standpoint, the fried chicken and the burger category are growing at a faster pace as compared to the pizza category. The first thing in terms of SSC, the reason for that is very clear that in the post-COVID era, you know, the customers have transitioned from just, you know, ordering pizzas online. They are trying and ordering other types of food as well. There is also the effort of the aggregator, which is coming here in terms of increased digital, digital adoption. The second thing I'm trying to make a point here is that clearly the packaging has also improved from the QSR side on pizza category. Most of these non-pizza chains in terms of delivery contribution moved up from about 15-20% to about 35-40% in the post-COVID era. And third thing is of course is penetration wise. So if you look at the numbers broadly, on a pan-India basis, you know, we would have somewhere close to four outlets per million population in terms of pizza. But in terms of fried chicken, that number is less than one. And in some of the metro cities, I think the penetration is, you know, one-fifth or one-sixth for fried chicken as compared to what pizza would be. So I think there is an opportunity for, you know, fried chicken as a category to grow at a faster pace in terms of SEG. There is an opportunity for them to even expand at a faster pace in terms of tour additions. And I think both these reasons are leading to better growth for the fried chicken category. Right. So what you're saying is that until two years ago, maybe pizza was dominating the quick service restaurant category. It's now fried chicken and burgers. And when you say burgers, you mean, is it equally divided between, or rather, how is it divided between a McDonald's and a Burger King? So if you look at McDonald's, uh, McDonald's is obviously larger as compared to a Burger King because Burger King has just about you know, recently started operations about a few years ago. So I think McDonald's has got significantly larger share as compared to a Burger King. And broadly, I think the numbers in terms of the QSR chain market for a McDonald's would be almost one and a half to two times as compared to what a Burger King would have. And if you were to stack now between burgers and fried chicken and pizza, what is the hierarchy today or the pecking order in the country? You mean in terms of market share? Market share, yeah. Absolute market share. Not looking at brands per se. So I think in terms of absolute market share, if you look at the relative market share is what basically we've got the data in terms of industry. Within the QSR chain market, I think if you look at the pizza category, you know, that would be, you know, somewhere close to about 40 to 45 percent. If you look at the pizza category, that would be around 40-45%. If you look at Jubilant, you know, within the QSR chain market and amongst the other chains put together. And then comes the burger category, which would be around 30-odd percent. And then the, the final 20-25% would be, you know, allocated towards the fried chicken. So this is how the market would be divided. But 
the total market share number is the market share of these players put together. So it's a relative market share which I'm giving you in terms of numbers. But you're saying that all these players now almost coming to half the entire QSR market because you said that earlier there used to be about 68 to 70%, but it's now 52% and dipping further. That's the unorganized space. Yes, correct, correct. Because if you look at the overall market as such, almost about 8 to 9% of the market as such is led by the QSR chain market. So their share is increasing. They were at about 6-7%. Today they're about 8-10%. Also for the data which we have only until FI22, not for FI23. But if you look at the pizza as a category in terms of the market from FI19 to FI22, pizza as a category has lost market share from 26% to 23%. And within the same period, over the last you know four years, rather pre-COVID to right now in the post-COVID era, the fried chicken category has gained market share from 7% to 10 million percent. So how much of this is a reflection of economics? Let's say maybe the prices of pizza going up because of cheese price going up, for example, versus changing taste and, you know, the way people are consuming fast food or QSR food. This is a change in terms of, you know, one is the consumption habits as well, wherein people are, you know, especially, you know, want to have, you know, a good quality food. And this trend is a mega trend, which is emerging in the post-COVID era because people have tried the superior quality food and spent more for their food during the COVID times. And that habit has somewhere kind of stayed back. So that is kind of benefiting, you know, these kind of players put together. Second, of course, is the adoption of digital and delivery. So I think if you look at the aggregator presence right now, the kind of penetration levels they are operating at, the kind of order traffic growth they are seeing right now. Most consumers, as I said, in pre-COVID times, were only ordering pizza in large volumes. And today they're ordering non-pizza as well. It could be fried chicken, burger, biryanis, South Indian, anything put together. So I think that habit has kind of stayed back in the post-COVID era as well. And I think these two reasons are driving the overall QSI industry growth. Specifically for the non-pizza category, they were lagging behind in a very big manner as far as delivery contribution is concerned. As I told you, they were at 15% delivery revenue contribution rather than 20%, which is now come to 40%. I think what you're also saying is that these big brands are essentially much bigger than, let's say, homegrown brands which in turn might be homegrown food as well right like you gave the example of a south indian dosa or a idli or vada or whatever yes of course so i think it's each one to its own so if you look at the pizza segment there in the competitive intensity is very high there are more than 12 to 14 brands which are competing which have got you know more than 20 outlets each at least in the fried chicken the competitive intensity that way is very low so in the post-covid era what has happened is that there are players in the fried chicken space or the burger space where the competitive intensity is lower, they have benefited. So if you look at Best Life, Devyani, Sapphire, the KFC part, they have benefited a lot in a very big manner. Uh, even the other chains, like the chains which have scaled up, for example, Wow Momos, could be, you know, other pizza chains, you know, it could be some South Indian restaurants, it could be Beru's, Biryani. So I think these chains have also adopted and, you know, kind of seen the benefit of world or digital, which is why we're seeing that, you know, pizza is feeling the pinch from both ends. One is from the competition within the pizza category and second is also the adoption of the non-pizza category because of the aggregators. Karan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Cohen. Pleasure as always. Understanding the payment rails in the context of PTM. The recent Paytm imbroglio in the Reserve Bank of India asking the company on January 30th to stop accepting new deposit in its accounts and digital wallets from March because of supervisory concerns and non-compliance with rules has caused considerable confusion, quite understandably, and even panic on not just the specific role of the payments bank here, but also on how money transfers happen in general and specific within India and perhaps in contrast to other countries. 
Now, India has a thriving UPI system that is the toast of the global financial world. But why is this system not so prevalent elsewhere? And what is the difference between the wallet mode and the UPI mode? Well, you're going to get that answer shortly. I spoke with Keta Raman Swaminathan, founder and CEO of marketing company GTM360, who's worked with fintech and IT over the years, and also author of the book From Disloyalty to Omnichannel Customer Engagement. S. Keta Raman graduated from IIT Bombay, is an MBA from Jamnalal Bajaj. He used to be head of global business development for Oracle Financial Services and also worked on banking and payments verticals. So I began by asking him to pick up from what we've been reading about Paytm, but more importantly, to talk about what this means in the broader context of understanding the payments universe and how essentially money is moving from you to me or me to everyone else. Within retail payment, there are essentially two categories of payment. One is the person-to-merchant payment and other is the person-to-person payment. The various methods available for carrying out person-to-merchant payments are essentially UPI, which is in a larger context called A2A RTP or account RTP, where the money goes from the consumer bank account to the merchant bank account in real time. The other option available is credit card, where the money does not go really anywhere. It's essentially a promise to pay where the merchant has a merchant account which is separate from the normal bank account and the consumer has a credit card account which is separate from the consumer normal savings or checking account. The money goes from the consumer's credit card account to the merchant's merchant account. The third option available is debit card which again runs on the same infrastructure provided by large card network players like Visa, MasterCard, Topay, etc. There the money goes from the consumer bank account to the merchant's merchant account from where it goes to the merchant's normal bank account. When it comes to P2M, as they call it, person to merchant, apart from, of course, like cash. Of course, cash is always there. Now, in India, we do not use check payments or P2M payment, but abroad in the US, etc., check payments are also extremely evolved in the sense that they are also like as electronic as, let's say, a UPI in a walk-in store. Come to the checkout counter, hand over a check, and the merchant can scan the check and within 15 seconds get the confirmation that my check is good or my check is bad. We don't have that rail in India, but uh, we do have uh, you know uh, cash, debit card, credit card, and uh, this A2A RTP, which is UPF. The important thing is that we also have things like NEFTs and IMPS or uh, person-to-person payments. In India, what happens is that because of the nature of business being what it is, we have humongous number of small merchants. Typically, these payments to these small merchants in Indian context are not even P2M payments. They are actually typically only P2P, really speaking. In addition, we have NEFT and IMPS. NEFT is not real-time. It takes about two hours or less. IMPS is actually real-time, and IMPS is the rail on which UPI runs. Because of popularity of UPI, we tend to attribute everything to UPI. But technically speaking, UPI is, you know, as the name itself says, it is a unified payments interface. It's only a unified payment interface. It is not the rail. The rail is like IMPS. And technically, it is possible to make payment to another person or a P2P or even a P2N payment via IMPS. Just that it is like a little more inconvenient. You need to know the bank account number. You need to enter the bank account number correctly. You need to know the IFSC code and so on and so forth. And I now understand, I've not used it, but I now understand that some banks are allowing IMPS payments only basis mobile phone number. That also like removes the uh, traditional friction associated with IMPS. 
and I'm going to come back to this in a second. But, you know, one of the questions that I've always wanted an answer to or was looking for an answer to is many of the Western countries also have obviously a lot of transactions, a lot more transactions, at least value wise. So why isn't something like UPI popular or as popular in, let's say, United States or Europe or Scandinavia for that matter? We have to separate this in USA and UK on one side. I don't know much about Scandinavia, but Holland or Germany. USA and UK have a very high penetration rate of credit card. Last I heard, USA is about 300%. That is, every individual in America has three credit cards in it. UK, I think, is in about 1.2 or something like that, but you know, well over 100%. So when people pay with a credit card, they get rewards, they get cash back, they get effort payment by whatever, 30 to 50 days. And on top of that, they get excellent front protection because that is how credit card is being designed. Now, when people were to pay by UPI, the money goes straight out of the bank account. There is no deferred payment. And there is, as far as I know, there is no rewards for UPI payment. And by design, UPI does not support fraud. We need to really, you know, understand. You go back to the history of payment, credit card support, a lot of fraud protection. So what typically happened was that people started buying stuff, paying with a credit card, and then claiming that they did not buy. So that is what is so-called first-party fraud. So merchants started complaining, saying that what the heck, we have essentially supplied this item to this guy and now he's turning around and you're, uh, you know, looking at it from a biased point of view of consumer. The credit card company really said that our objective is to replace cash and we want to make it as easy to replace cash as possible. So we will be biased to the consumer. Over a period of time, that created the need for another alternative payment system, which is this A2A RTP or account real-time payment, of which UPI is one. So. In the case of UPI, the bias is towards the merchant rather than towards the consumer. So if the consumer made wrong payment to an unintended beneficiary credit card, the system of credit card is biased towards the consumer and allows chargeback. But the system of UPI is biased towards the merchant and does not permit any Technically, at least as far as the design of the basic payment method is concerned, one cannot get like the kind of fraud protection in UPI as one can get in credit card. Now, there is nothing stopping the regulator and or one or two banks from layering additional security on top of the rail. But the rail technically does not support, uh, you know, property. those countries, when they get all those benefits with a credit card, and they've been using credit card for like some 30, 40 years, obviously, you know, there is no compelling need for them to change to an ATP, A2A ATP like UPI. So that's the reason why these things are not very popular there. Having said that, in Germany, Cash use is very high and Germany also does not have a very high penetration rate of credit card. There is a UPI equivalent called SOFORT. So it is reasonably popular. Where we are today in terms of, let's say, wanting to do so many transactions, so one payment service provider in the country is having a problem. All these options that we've spoken of, all the rails that, as you defined it, is it easy to migrate? How do you see that part evolving as consumers look for choice or apprehensive consumers who are trying to understand what to do next? Yeah, I think one important thing that we have to understand here is that case of the Paytm situation, there is absolutely no problem with the rail. IMPS, which is the rail, is like, you know, a working pipe. Unified peripheral payment interface is working fine. What we have is a problem with the, one of the many entities at the end, at the node. So there is no question of migrating, you know, from Paytm to NEFT or, you know, credit card, you know, anything like that. It's really a question of migrating merchant who has a 
merchant accountant, Paytm, payment bank to a, some other payment bank. The rest of the uh, transaction flows identical. I was just uh, thinking of giving an analogy. Take some other thing I want to go from Pune to say Delhi. So there is a train connection. I have to, let's say, take an auto rickshaw from Pune to Pune station and let's say like taxi from Delhi station to wherever I want to go in Delhi. Now the Paytm situation is uh, analogous to the taxi in Delhi breaking down. So I don't really have to change my train because of that. I don't have to put another railway line between Pune and Delhi to mitigate that. All I have to do is I take another taxi or like walk or take DTC bus or like so take auto or that. So there's really no question of migration. And, you know, of course, people will like to enlarge the Paytm problem to that of you know the whole country, nation, startup, ecosystem, blah blah blah. But it's like really be a one single mode. Thank you so much for joining me and taking us through this. And of course, we'd love to speak to you again as we go deeper, just to understand the payments universe as it is and it's all its intricacies and complexities. Thank you so much. Bye. On that note, hopefully you've understood how money indeed moves and will move in this country. Have a great day ahead. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>